Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Christoph Koch. Christoph is a neuroscientist and the chief scientist at the Allen Institute for Brain Science. For many years, the scientific study of consciousness has been one of his main fields of inquiry. Welcome, Christoph. Thank you, Jim, for having me. Yeah, this is, uh, as people know who listen to my show, one of my areas of uh, strongest interest is the scientific study of consciousness, and I underline scientific. We're going to talk about all kinds of things, some of them pretty far out, but all of them will be from the perspective of science. Uh, and I'd also like to say or, and, and announce that this is the second in our series on the science of consciousness. Our first was with Emery Brown from MIT on consciousness and anesthesia. Coming up in a few weeks is Bernard Bars, who is the uh, creator of the global uh, workspace theory of consciousness. And uh, next month, we'll have Antonio Damasio to talk about his brand new book, hot off the presses at that time, uh, with his own theories on the scientific basis of consciousness. But today we're going to talk with Christoph about the scientific study of consciousness, and a lot of it's going to be based on his relatively recent book, The Feeling of Life Itself, Why Consciousness is Widespread but Can't Be Computed. Uh, I should also note the uh, end notes at the end of each chapter are very much worth reading in this book. Uh, it's one of the things I really appreciate is when end notes are more than just dry bibliographic uh, information. Uh, if you read the book, don't skip the end notes. They're good. Uh, in fact, and there's some humor in them too. So they're, they're, they're definitely worth reading. Anyway, let's get right down to it. Consciousness is one of those very slippery concepts. You know, I talk to people about consciousness a fair amount and they have radically different ideas in their brain, what they mean when they use the word. I'm sure you've run into that. Somewhat, although most scholars, most philosophers and scholars who study it agree that it's really closely related to the way life feels when I'm angry, when I'm in love, when I see something, when I hear something, when I dream of something, uh, when I have a, an ecstatic experience, when I have a near-death experience, when I have a psychedelic experience and I see colors and you know, hear sounds that aren't really there, those are all different aspects of conscious experience. And, and the central mystery is and has always been since, you know, Aristotle first wrote about this 2,300 years ago is how is it that these feelings get into my head? It's clear, or at least in principle, it's clear why I, I, if I see something, I can reach out with my hand and grab the coffee cup the coffee cup, but why I should actually have a picture and why this picture feels like something, right? I can, you know, I can look at my coffee cup and, it, you know, it looks like, a, like I'm, there's a movie and this is the movie of my life. And then there are these voices and sounds and how, how do these voices come upon? How do these sounds come across? And then I have feelings, you know, I can be angry. I can be in love. How do these feelings come about? 
And the mystery is I can imagine sort of all the events. Let's see if I go back to this image of the coffee cup in front of me. I can see the photon strike my retina. And in the retina and the eye, it sets up electrical excitation. And that travels up the optic nerve that leaves the eye into the brain proper. And this electric activity gives rise to other electric activity in downstream neurons in my cortex. And ultimately, that activity gives rise to activity in my motor cortex that translates it into activity in my spinal cord that activates my muscle in my hand and I reach out. That chain of events, at least in principle, is sort of we can imagine these mechanistic events happening. But then in addition to, there's this feeling. It's like the genie rubs, you know, you rub the brass lamp and suddenly there's a genie there. <laughs> Wait a minute, how do these feelings come there? Right? Nothing in physics tells us, nothing in quantum mechanics, nothing in relativity tells us about feelings, nothing in the periodic table of elements in chemistry, nothing about the endless ATGC chat in our genes tells us about these conscious feelings, but here they are. So that's the central mystery. Indeed. Uh, going back into the history of the idea, one of the in the very early pre-modern period, just pre-modern period, uh, Descartes, René Descartes, came forth with, with his idea of Cartesian dualism. Could you maybe tell us what that is and maybe your thoughts on uh, uh, what that did to the thinking about consciousness? We owe an immeasurable debt to René Descartes, the Frenchman who lived most of his adult life, in fact, in Broad in Holland, because there he felt he was relatively safe to do and write uh, what he wanted to do. So he's one of the, the fathers of in the Enlightenment. And he really put the modern formulation of the mind-body problem on the map. It's really due to him. And ever since then, over the last, you know, 350 years, it involves terms that he first, that he conceived, or he's one of the first who, who conceived them certainly in the, in the modern world. So he clearly distinguished two magisteria, two domains. Uh, one is the stuff that we that has extension, that has physical extension, physical stuff. He called it res extans. Everything that has physical dimensions. Our brains, our bodies, stars, dogs, trees, including our bodies, including our brains. He actually studied the brain. But then in addition to, there's this other domain, and that's uh, res cogitans, res cogitans, cognitive stuff. And he said only we have it, only humans have it, and this is the ability, this is to think, this is, um, this is what we would um, today call consciousness, this is reasoning, this is speaking, and for him, of course, also the, um, the soul. Uh, you know, he was a Roman Catholic, the soul was associated with this cognitive stuff. And he said, okay, so everything in the world is either uh, uh, physical stuff, today we'd say matter, or it's cognitive stuff. And intuitive, this makes a huge amount of sense. Because uh, there are two things in, you know, the physical is quite different from the mental. The physical is attribute that we can all observe. Right? They may be very tricky to observe because they depend on uh, fancy instruments like, uh, you know, colliders or telescopes or microscopes or fMRI. But we can all agree the physical is sort of concrete. It's not private. It's, it's, um, you can measure it. It has so-called third-person properties that scientists can measure in the lab, like brain activity. That's an instance of a physical property of a physical system, the brain. But then there's this other thing, mental. You know, and mental is, is very, it's the most real thing there is for me. 
because my entire world that I experience is mental. I see things, I hear things, I reason things, I hear voices, I think about my mom, I, I project myself into the future. All of those are mental operations. And the question is, how does the physical relate to the mental? Now, his thing is called dualism. It's also called classical dualism or Cartesian dualism because it's the way we think about him because he postulates two sorts of stuff, mental and physical. Now, most modern philosophers, particular philosophers in, in Anglo-American um, uh, Anglo uh, university departments, are analytic philosophers, and they don't like dualism. There is this very strong bias towards what used to be called materialism, but now it's, all, it's, it's also called physicalism, that ultimately there's only one sort of stuff. Everything has physical properties. There isn't anything above and beyond physics ultimately, that the laws of physics properly expressed should explain everything, including the mental. And that has been the challenge. So the, the, the challenge with classical dualism is how does the physical and the mental stuff relate? We know they closely relate because if I hit you on your head hard enough, you'll become unconscious. That's one trivial way we can see that the, the physical, your brain, and your mental, your consciousness have this close relationship. You can have a specific stroke in your in your brain and you lose specific aspects of what you see. Oliver Sacks, you know, has written many beautiful stories about that. So we know there's this very intimate relationship between the physical and the mental. But how the physical exactly influences the mental, and then more important, how does the mental influence the physical? If the mental is really this ineffable stuff that can't be measured, that doesn't have physical property, well, how can it make my brain do things? I want to lift my right hand and lo and behold, my right hand goes up. I want to lift my left hand and lo and behold, my left hand goes up. Well, that's magic. It seems like magic because here it is. My, it's a mental concept I have. I want to raise my right hand. And the next thing I see, my right hand shoots up. Well, so it, somehow there must have been a mental to physical jump. People call it mental causation. The mental has to have caused something physical. But how does that happen? That's the mystery. And so you can do away with it by saying, well, okay, there isn't any dual. There's only one sort of stuff. Everything is physical. But then you have this great challenge explaining, well, but what is this, this, this mental stuff? It seems radical different. For once, it's private, right? You never have access to my mental state. You can infer my mental state by saying, well... You tell me you're hungry, so I assume you're hungry, but I could be an actor. I could be faking it, right? That makes it very different from the physical. That is not private. That's, that's only the third-person properties. So that's been the challenge relating the physical to the mental brain to, to our conscious mind. That's really the heart of the mind-body problem. Indeed. And, uh, you know, it strikes, it reminds me of uh, the intellectual confusion around people trying to understand complexity science of the sort we do at the Santa Fe Institute. Uh, I often uh, use a very simple analogy to try to explain what complexity is about. I think it may well apply here, at least it's one angle of attack, uh, which is thinking about reductionism is thinking about the dancer. What's the dancer about? It's got two legs, can do this, weighs this much, this agile, while the dance is the thing that a number of dancers do together. And the dance itself has an existence separate from the dancers. Kind of the over-reductionism of some earlier science uh, got people confused about uh, the mind-body problem and that the, they didn't seem to feel naturally that the concept of an emergent dance uh, from 
50 billion dancers uh, was something that's uh, relatively commonplace in at least the biological world. Well, Jim, that's one possible answer, that consciousness emerges, quote, right? So this is what many people say, it emerges from large complex systems like the brain. So in principle, that sounds fine. Obviously, we find it in very big, large brains like our brains or brains of monkeys and apes and dogs and cats and, and mice and whatnot. But what exactly do you mean by emergent? Do you mean if you take, you know, 41 neurons, you don't have consciousness, and then you add one neuron and suddenly you get consciousness, right? Then you still have to explain what is that consciousness? Is it just a collective property of all the... Of, is it just something mechanistic of 42 neurons interacting? Uh, but it's again, it seems to be different. And so this emergent, which used to be a very popular uh, sort of solution, many people still talk about it, emergent. From a metaphysical, ontological point of view, it's not quite clear what exactly you mean by that. It is clear that if you look at an, uh, things like wetness, so people say, well, the wetness of water emerges from... Not if you have one molecule of H2O of water or two or three, but if you have many, you get you get this idea of surface tension, and this is really ultimately what you know that that water clings to the walls, let's say of a of a, of a glass, of a pipette, or something like that. That's what we think of as wetness. It's a collective property. But then you have to ask, well, what, what aspect of collective property is consciousness? Do you just need enough neurons? But clearly that can't be the case because we know some parts of the brain, in fact, the, the, the little brain at the back of my brain, the so-called cerebellum, has four times more neurons than my cortex. Yet if you lose the cerebellum due to a stroke or a tumor or something, you will not complain about loss of consciousness. People who had, had for example, either never had a, a cerebellum due to a, a birth defect or... Um, who, where the, uh, the cerebellum had to be removed surgically due to tumor, you know, they, they walk funny, they talk funny, they've lost sort of, um, you know, the smooth uh, integration of their, um, of their motor systems, but they don't complain that they lost consciousness. So it can't just be, well, if you put enough neurons together, you get this collective emergent behavior. It has to be much more specific than that. Now, uh... Uh, the guy I have followed historically on this has been John Searle, and he would argue that it is a biological function, as he uh, likes to say. If you think about uh, consciousness as like digestion, uh, you may not be far from the, the point. In fact, I like to add the rut corollary that, in, uh, at least humans, the end result might be very similar to digestion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, that it had gradually bootstrapped over many uh, long epoch of evolution. And, uh, you know, our consciousness isn't the same as a reptiles or amphibians or dogs, but they're all on a uh, on the evolutionary tree. Uh, and they all serve relatively similar or analogous, at least, uh, evolutionary purposes. And it's a really cool book by guys. I think you actually reference it, Feinberg and Mallet on the uh, ancient evolutionary history of consciousness. And they make a pretty interesting uh, case that at least in our tree, they are evolutionarily connected back at least to the amphibians and maybe further. They also make, of course, a very interesting other argument that perhaps consciousness evolved at least twice. Uh, they'd argue that the cephalopods, some of the bigger ones like squid and octopi, 
probably have a, a different form of consciousness that's not on the same evolutionary tree. And actually, there's a they demonstrate a large evolutionary gap between uh, our tree and that tree, which is kind of interesting. Does it say that uh, complicated brains uh, tend to produce consciousness? I don't know. But anyway, uh, I think enough on that. We'll get we'll dig back into these topics in a lot more depth uh, uh, soon. Uh, before we move on uh, deeper. Uh, why don't we define a term that we're going to use uh, later on, which is the neural correlates of consciousness. You kind of hinted at it with your uh, talk about the cerebellum. Yeah, so this is a, a term that Francis Crick, the person who co-discovered the DNA molecule of heredity, uh, he and I, we worked um, in the late 80s and the early 1990s when he had left Cambridge. He came to the New World, to La Jolla in uh, Southern California, he was very interested in consciousness, and he always asked, why aren't neuroscientists interested in consciousness? They should study consciousness, uh, because it's sort of the most central aspect of our existing, and trying to elide that seems just ridiculous, seems a cop-out. And so we wrote many papers together and worked closely together for many years, and we originated this idea of what's today called the NCC, the Neural Correlates of Consciousness, which is the minimal set of physical biophysical slash physical mechanisms that are jointly necessary for any one conscious percept. So if you hear my voice, you know, my Germanic flavored voice, there will be some neural mechanism in your brain that's active. Let's say some set of neurons are firing. That seems sort of a simple intuition. And if I somehow turn those neurons off by some intervention, by drugs or an electrode or whatever, then you wouldn't hear my voice anymore, although I would still be talking. Conversely, if you can trigger those neurons, let's say by, a, by an electrode during neurosurgery, you should be able to hear my voice even though I, I wasn't speaking. And so you can ask, where are those neurons? You can ask, where are the neurons that respond to my voice versus your voice versus the voice of, of someone else? You can ask, where are the neurons that encode visual perception, not auditory, but visual. And do they look similar? Are they of the same cell type? Are they in similar parts of the brain? Are they in same layers? Do they have a common set of genes? Do they use a common set of neurotransmitter? And you can ask that for every conscious perception, right? The conscious perception of, of uh, you know, touch or pain. The most dominant ones that are studied in the labs because they're relatively easy to study are sound, uh, sound, vision, and uh, and touch. But for everyone, the feeling of wanting, the feeling of desiring, all of those people have studied under various conditions in the lab. And this project is, is sort of neutral of any particular ontology. So no, no matter whether you're a physicalist or whether you're a dualist or whether you're a panpsychist, you can always ask, well, there is some set of new... We know this through the clinic. We know this partly through study like uh, like your previous guest from MIT of, of anesthesia. Right? There are mechanisms in the brain that are specifically associated with conscious uh, sensations. So what is their nature? Can we track them down? Will that help us understand the central mystery of consciousness, the link between the physical and conscious experience? That remains unclear. But it is clear that this by itself is a valid scientific project that's done now in many labs, tracking the neural correlates of consciousness on the front of the brain or the back of the brain. I think we'll talk later about that as part of the adversarial collaboration. When do they occur relative to the onset of the stimulus? How can I induce them by, by electrodes or by transcranial devices? How can I manipulate them using psychedelics and others, 
and other uh, drugs. Maybe give us a brief summary of uh, what you believe the evidence shows where the, uh, the main uh, neural correlates of consciousness are. Well, so we ha- it's important to distinguish between, the, um, uh, between enabling factors, background conditions that have to be present for you to be conscious at all. For instance, if your heart doesn't beat, you know, you will faint within five to 10 seconds because your brain doesn't have any extra power reserves and you will lose consciousness, right? So if somebody chokes you, for instance, within 10 seconds, you lose consciousness. Now, unlike the ancients, including Aristoteles, we don't believe that your mind is in your heart, but your heart is necessary to suffuse um, oxygen, you know, into your blood and to power the brain. So that's an enabling factor. Likewise, in the brainstem, there are enabling factors that are absolutely essential for being awake and aroused. And if you lose them, let's say you have a stroke, even though the stroke can be very small, if you have a stroke in the brainstem, particularly if it's bilateral, you're in bad shape. You may be, you may be in coma and never wake up again, although your cerebral cortex is, um, is perfectly intact. So we know that there are are parts of the brainstem that are absolutely essential, but they by themselves do not mediate any conscious percept. So, for instance, if your brainstem is intact, but your cortex is destroyed, again, the evidence shows you're not conscious. You have the background conditions in principle to be conscious, but there's no one home. So it turns out that the, uh, all the clinical evidence points towards cortex, you know, this outermost layer of the brain. It's, if you, it's sort of highly convolved, right? If you unfold it, it's like a pizza. So each brain hemisphere is like a pizza. You know, if you look at it, the brain looks like a walnut somewhat. And you can unfold this, this big walnut and f- unfold it. It's, a, it's 12 to 14 inch across like a pizza. And it's roughly the size of a pizza with uh, thickness of a pizza with toppings, you know, two to, two to three or four millimeters. And you have two of them and they're interconnected by these fibers called the corpus callosum, 200 million fibers that connect the left uh, half with the, with the right half. And it's really part of this tissue. This is the most complex piece of active matter in the known universe. This tissue, this two-dimensional tissue is what gives rise to consciousness in humans. It's not to say that a- other animals, like we, we talked about lizards and reptiles and amphibians, that don't have a classical neocortex, that they that they aren't conscious, that they don't have a different NCC. But humans in particular and mammals in general, consciousness seems to be closely tied to excitation in this tissue. Now, even here in cortex, I'd see certain regions are more closely aligned with consciousness than other regions. Again, we know that through the cl- partly through the clinic because you can lose some parts of cortex and you, you might have some deficits, but you don't necessarily lose consciousness. And there's now a big debate in the field, that's this adversarial collaboration, whether consciousness in the cortex is in the front of cortex or is it more in the back. The front is more associated with cognitive functions like intelligence and reasoning, while activity in the back of cortex is more associated with things like uh, uh, sensing, seeing, hearing, touching, imagining, visualizing. Now, the thalamus is also involved, at least from what I've read, that uh, you, you, you whack the thalamus, at least in certain nuclei, and consciousness will disappear pretty quickly. Yeah, what's not, yes, it, uh, um, that is true. If you have lesions in your thalamus, sort of, uh, it's sort of this, um, 
you know, a small egg, like a, a duck egg or something, quail egg, uh, in the middle of the brain, and it's divided into 40 different nuclei, that sort of sub-assemblies of neurons, and they supply the different parts of cortex with upgoing information and with downgoing information. And if you have a, le a large-scale lesion there, you can also lose consciousness. What is not clear, if you take this, this cortex, this two-dimensional um, tissue, think of it like a carpet, if you suffuse that with, with various neurotransmitters that are conventionally emitted by thalamus, can you replace the thalamic input? So is ultimately thalamus also enabling factor or is it really critically involved? That's an open question, at least to my mind. Because there is this possibility, if you can replace the thalamus, the thalamic input in a normal person, in a normal awaking state, with some um, arousal factors that sort of you spritz onto the cortex, then there's this possibility that essentially just this tissue by itself, this pizza size, very, very dense, very complex tissue of roughly 16 billion neurons, that would give rise to consciousness. And uh, you mentioned that uh, there's disagreement about where in the brain, but you have your own views, uh, what you call the hot zone. Where, where's the hot zone? Yeah, so uh, the clinical evidence, particularly based on lesion and based on uh, uh, electrical stimulation that neurosurgeons do uh, or neurologists do to test for, for example, the presence of, um, of epileptic uh, seizures, that typically give rise to conscious sensations or if you remove it, gives rise to loss of, of consciousness in sort of the, the back of the brain. Not all, the, all in the back, but sort of uh, the posterior reason, occipital, temporal, uh, parietal. And that this really is the most critical part for the conscious experience of everyday life. Seeing and hearing the sounds and, and sights of life. That they depend that that conscious experience, that sort of 99% of our conscious experience depends on activity in this part of the brain, that that ultimately is its substrate. And by the way, it's not because of any, I'm biased against the front versus the back. I mean, you know, the, it doesn't really matter what's in the front of the back. The claim is ultimately one part is more important for consciousness than the other because the intrinsic connectivity is very different. That's really ultimately what matters, at least according to, in, to the theory I favor, integrated information theory. It's, it's not that I take a brain and I turn it around by 180 degrees and now the front is the back and the back is the front and consciousness shifts. No, it has to do that the connectivity, the intrinsic connectivity in the back of the brain is quite different from the intrinsic connectivity in the front of the brain. And that is ultimately what makes a difference for conscious experience. And as we'll talk later, we may distinguish these two leading theories. So let's move a little bit from the uh, material substrates to the more subjective aspects. Uh, you know, the word that's often used by uh, philosophers of consciousness and scientists of consciousness is qualia, the plural of quail. Uh, you know, there are arguments about it. You know, uh, in fact, uh, some philosophers of consciousness like the Churchlands uh, argue that uh, it's more or less an illusion, that it's epiphenomenal. What do you have to say about uh, qualia and uh, its reality? Well, yeah, so as I said, uh, people, particularly in the modern era, have challenges with the mental. What is the mental? How does the uh, mental relate to the physical? So one way of eliminating that challenge is just to say, well, the mental actually doesn't exist. You're just confused about it. 
the Churchland, Pat, Church, uh, Pat and, and Paul Churchland, and of course, Dan Dennett uh, are the most famous advocates of that. So that's like saying, well, you're, you're simply all confused about it. Yeah, that simply doesn't, I, I had this correspondence with, uh, with Dan Dennett while I was on a climb in the Sierras and I had this really bad toothache. It was so bad I had to abort my climb and, and, and go home. And you know, you're lying in your tent, you can't sleep, you're in complete misery and your entire consciousness is filled with the, the agony of this inflamed tooth. And to say, well, sorry, Christoph, <laughs> you're just confused. There isn't anything like pain. All the suffering, all the pain that people experience, that's just all illusion. It's all fake. It doesn't exist. Well, it simply doesn't cut it, to say the least. Uh, I mean, if, if this is an illusion, then, you know, then, I mean, it just seems to be the most irrational manifestation of the human mind to declare the central aspect of my life, which is my conscious experience, to just say, well, you're just confused about it all because I don't right now have a rational a rational way to explain it. You know, there is this psychiatric syndrome called Cotard syndrome, where people claim that they're dead due to various, uh, I mean, it's a psychiatric condition. And it seems to be sort of the philosophical equivalence of that, that people say, well, you're actually dead. There isn't any feeling at all. I know you claim it, but you're just all confused. So um, that doesn't cut it. So we have to confront it. We have to confront the fact that there is this consciousness. It's different from the physics. It's closely tied to the physical, right? I don't think we need supernatural explanation to understand it. We just need to sort of enlarge the remit of what we call physical. That perhaps the physical, just like, uh, you know, in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, people had to include this new thing called magnetic magnets and magnetic fields into their description of physical reality. And early on in the 20th uh, centuries, we included the thing called spin, that particles can have a spin up or spin down, and some particles can have, you know, fractions of a spin. Just so, I, I would suggest to explain consciousness, we have to enlarge somewhat what we mean by physical. Physical ultimately is anything that has causal power on other things ultimately is physical. That's one way to think about it. This goes back to, to a comment uh, in Plato, uh, in one of the Plato dialogues, anything that exists, exists because it has causal powers onto others. That's how I know things exist, because they, they have causal power on me, or I may have some minute causal power on them. Like the moon, it exists because it has causal powers. It, it, you know, it leads to the rise and fall of the water in the ocean. It's clearly visible. I have a minute influence on it, but it has a larger influence on me, and that applies sort of to, um, to everything physical. Consciousness also has causal power, but at least per this one theory, integrated information theory, it has causal power upon itself. But it is something physical. So in that sense, John Searle is entirely correct. Consciousness ultimately is, is like digestion. It is something ultimately associated with physical stuff, with certain types of physical organization. Not any physical organization, like not a, a, a dune or not a, you know, a hill of, of sand. Um, but it's associated with certain systems, particularly with very complex, highly networked system. It is something physical. And ultimately, if we sort of properly uh, expand our remit of what we mean by physical, it's just going to be part of physicalism. So you just expand your notion of what is physical. That's it.
That's good. That's a very clear explanation. Uh, let's move on to the next piece, which I thought was very well done, very interesting, made me think about consciousness a little bit differently, which you uh, very carefully distinguished uh, consciousness from intelligence and cognition. Maybe take our audience through that a little bit. Yeah, so when most people think about consciousness, they think about, well, particular consciousness in adults, particularly in literary adults, the people who write books, and then you think it's about reasoning and, you know, imagining future scenarios. And clearly it seems to be more present by this notion in sort of more intelligent people. And it seems to relate to uh, intelligence. But then the challenge with consciousness is the following. If I stare at an empty black screen, the black mirror right, of, the, of the show, right, that already is full of consciousness, consciousness of space and and we never think about it, has an empty canvas like a black screen, has already all this teeming... I mean, when you look at it, there's space, there's distance relationship, there's closer by and far away, there's inclusion, there's neighborhood relationship. All of that is already expressed just in a blank canvas without anything present. You don't need a fancy scene. You get it, of course, also when you have a fancy picture, but even without a picture, there is already notion, there's triangle relationships, Right, their linear relationships, their inclusion, there's exclusion. So if you think about it in, in this way, consciousness of smell, consciousness of, uh, of, of hearing, when, when I hear this entire 3D space around me, those are very complicated things, uh, and they do not necessarily relate to our conventional notions of intelligence, like in an intelligence quotient. The claim, once again, of integrated information theory that they a priori are completely dissociable, that you can sort of plot, you can ma make a two-dimensional plot. On the one axis, you plot a measure of intelligence, like IQ or G factor or anything else, you know, no matter how you want to measure intelligence, and psychologists, you know, have derived measures, you plot it on the x-axis. And then consciousness, if you have a, a measure like integrated information theory has phi, you can plot on the y-axis. Now, if you look at it evolutionary, there seems to be this relationship that if you take complex animals with complex brains like ours, they have high uh, intelligence and high consciousness. And then you take a dog. A dog is smart, right? It has canine intelligence, but it's, it seems to be less than ours. And its consciousness, presumably, is also less than ours. And so you can go down the evolutionary you know, ladder until you get to you know, maybe cephalopods. And then you look at some simple snails and you look at a fruit fly and maybe you look at a paramecium and and sort of there's a sort of monotonic relationship as the size of the brain grows its intelligence grows and its its consciousness grows but then you can take creatures like um brain organoids right so people can now we are now stem cells engineers are very good at taking cells from your underarm underneath your arm, away from the sun, putting it in a dish, uh, adding four um, uh, transcription factors, waiting nine, uh, nine months, putting it in an incubator at the right temperature, suffusing it with nutrients, and you can grow these, these things into so-called uh, brain organoids, cerebral organoids, that share certain aspects with brain cells in your brain, in fact, indeed, even in your cortex. They even begin to show electrical activity now. So now you have people that can grow them maybe half a million cells, and they begin to show something like a very, very simple EG. 
But of course, there's no intelligence there because there's no input, there's no output, right? There is no way to manipulate anything. And so we can't measure, is it intelligent by any measure? But at least conceptually, it could certainly feel like something. Conversely, you can take something like, uh, like um, AlphaGo, AlphaGo Zero, the various um, computer programs that DeepMind has built that certainly by some measure are intelligent. They can teach themselves to play Go and chess better than any living person. So by some measure, they're, they're, they're intelligent. There's no evidence there at all that they are conscious. And so in this plane, you can have uh, the idea that, that computers in principle could have very high levels of intelligence, but no consciousness, while, while you, you could in principle imagine you can grow brains if you think again about what we talked earlier, this cortex, these cortical carpets, you can grow them to a relatively large and complex size where they may have no intelligence but high level of consciousness. And then if you think about really what is meant by the term consciousness and intelligence, it really becomes clear that they denote very different things. Intelligence, ultimately, it's about the ability to manipulate our environment, right? It's to take rapidly in, uh, information in to conclude, to infer something, and then to act upon that immediately on the short term, on the medium term, on the long term, right? To plan for the long term. That's intelligence. And some people have a lot and other people have a less and it changes across species. Consciousness is this, is this sensation, is this feeling, is this qualia that's very different from, from behavior. One is essentially about doing. Intelligence is fundamentally about doing. Consciousness is fundamentally about being. They're really two very different things, certainly conceptually. So it depends on your theory now, but at least at the conceptual level, we need to dis sharply distinguish between intelligence, which is about doing, and, and consciousness, which is about being. Being in a state of seeing or being happy or being angry or being upset or being uh, unconscious. Let me run an analogy by you that I came up with when I was chatting with a friend over the weekend. He was asking me what I was reading, and I told him about your book, and he was fascinated by it. And I suggested that uh, Christoph would say that here's an analogy that consciousness, at least in the con in the frame of conscious cognition, uh, what we do in our system two type reasoning, uh, consciousness is like the building site, and intellect is the building. Uh, you know, humans are a very complicated building, like an oil refinery, maybe a. Uh, a reptile is like a little, uh, you know, small portable sawmill or something like that. But all buildings need the ground beneath them. So uh, it's essentially the substrate in which we do conscious cognition. Is, is that tolerable as an analogy? You neglect aspects of consciousness that are much more basic. If Let's go back to the toothache, okay? Have you ever been in pain, in bad pain? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So what is cognitive about pain? Right, when you really have a bad pain, it is a god-awful feeling. It can be so bad that you want to kill yourself to end it. But there's very little cognitive about it. It's not abstract. It's not an abstract manipulation. It may not involve memory or planning or reasoning or any of those other things. It's just a god-awful state of being. You know, conversely, let's, uh, you know, think about sex and orgasm. Again, wh what about the orgasm itself? It's this intensely pleasurable thing, right? What is cognitive about it? It is this intense, it is this state which you want to last forever. Or if you take a drug like 5-MeO-DMT, like right? When your entire 
being is reduced to this point of immeasurable, of, of everything is gone except this point of icy blue light where you can't turn away from, you look at it because it's the only thing that exists. Everything else is gone. You're gone. Your ego is gone. There's no more you. There's no more dreams, desire, fear. It's all gone. What there is, is this presence of this icy blue, uh, blue point of unbearable intensity and a feeling either of ecstasy or of dread or, or a combination of ecstasy and dread. Again, there's nothing cognitive about it. So these are all highly, highly conscious states that are either, you know, aversive or repetitive, you know, they're either very positive or very negative or somewhere in between, but without having associated uh, sort of cognitive operations. That's not to say that you can't also have cognitive operations, right? I can do mathematics, I can, I can think about metaphysics of consciousness, and I have certain conscious, uh, conscious experience with them. But we tend to emphasize those and write books about those, while the, the, Many forms of consciousness are completely neglected, yet they make up the very feeling of life itself. Yeah, that's why I use the distinction between a building site and the building. You know, that perhaps our thinking through, let's say, doing a math proof, uh, we may use the machinery of consciousness. And of course, this is closer to global workspace theory that we uh, shuffle in and shuffle out uh, various conscious contents onto this uh, plane of consciousness, which by itself, uh, is much more subjective, but is able to have conscious contents within it. Uh, I know that's that's more GWT and less IIT, but uh, that, that's where my analogy came from. All right, yeah. I, again, I would challenge you when you mean it's less subjective. What do you mean by that? Because for you, as a conscious observer, you, Jim, Jim Rudd, it's the only thing there is. In fact, how do you know a world exists at all? This is, I mean, Schrödinger makes this very clear, that the precondition for us doing physics is the fact that I can see, you know, uh, I can see these uh, microscopes, I can see images, I can read off a voltmeter or, you know, a scale, right? So for me to know the existence of a world, I depend on my conscious subjective feelings. So for me, as an, as an observer, it's the only thing there is ultimately is just subjective feelings. Now, of course, we also have science, and science sort of de deals in these uh, so-called objective things that, in other words, things that you and I can agree on. We can agree on that, you know, this that this brain has such and such texture and has this and this mass, etc. We can agree on. But for you as an individual observer, or for me as an individual observer, ultimately, the only reality is the reality of my conscious experience. I cannot escape my conscious experience. Yeah, I don't think we're disagreeing there at all. Like, but say, for instance, if you add two numbers in your head, two small numbers, five plus three, uh, it's all in your head. Uh, but I think one would, could argue that the concept of five and the concept of three are conscious contents, which live in the same space as our consciousness, and we can manipulate them using conscious tools, etc. So the you know there's there's a relationship between the ground and the superstructures is what I'm getting at. Yes, no, and there you're entirely correct. Otherwise, it wouldn't have evolved. It's not random, right? It's, in fact, highly, highly precise this mapping between this, I guess, what you would call the superstructure and the, and the ground. I, otherwise, it would, simply wouldn't have evolved. Yeah, exactly. That's the point I made earlier, that uh, it's got to have a function because it's not cheap, right? The energy of the, uh, in the brain is, 20, is uh, 3% of the body's mass, but it's 20% of its energy. Uh, if you assume something like the default mode network is somehow involved with uh, consciousness, which 
some people think it is. Uh, that's a non-trivial amount of the total firings, if not the total mass of the brain. Uh, and you know, the energy budget for support consciousness probably pretty large, and maybe an equally large amount of genetic information costs. So. Uh, if it's not useful for something, uh, it's uh, kind of hard to imagine why it's uh, persisted for more than 200 million years. We'd love to talk about this stuff, unfortunately, but unfortunately, we only have a certain amount of time. So I'm going to skip ahead across some uh, some things, and let's uh, let's get now to the theory that you uh, expound with great elegance, uh, which is the informa- integrated information theory that was developed by uh, how do you pronounce his first name? Giulio Tononi. An Italian-American uh, uh, neuroscientist and psychiatrist over the last 20 years. He's at the University of Madison in uh, Wisconsin. Yep. I read his paper when it first came out, and I said, wow, this is really interesting. And it's gone through some iterations. So let's, uh, you know, let's start slow, but let's see how far we can go on explaining first what in, uh, integrated information theory is and why we might believe that it has something to do with consciousness. Um, IIT is a fundamental theory. In a sense, it starts from uh, axioms, and then it proceeds from the axiom to postulates, and the postulates then uh, have certain consequences that you can then measure. Let's take a step back. There are many people who say who have a theory of consciousness. Most of the time, what they have is a hunch. They have a hypothesis. So famously, of course, Francis Crick and I had this idea that 40 hertz gamma oscillations are one of the critical signatures of consciousness, uh, one of the NCCs. You know, the fact that neurons uh, can often fire periodically roughly every, you know, 40 or 50 times a second. It's called the gamma or the 40 hertz oscillation. Now, that wasn't a theory. That was just a, that was a hunch. It may have been right. It may have been wrong. We still don't fully understand, but that's not a theory. So many people in that sense have a theory. They have a hunch that, oh, quantum mechanics is important. Again, that's not a theory. A theory really has to start with a few basic assumptions and then has to describe uh, and explain as much as possible of all of consciousness. Uh, And particularly, you want a good theory to make uh, predictions and extrapolations that weren't assumed at the beginning, particularly to explain new phenomena. So IT starts out with sort of assumption, uh, this axiomatic uh, formulation that consciousness exists for itself. So this is really the Cartesian insight, you know, cogito ergo sum, Japan, you know, I, I'm conscious, therefore I am, and that consciousness exists for me. It doesn't require an observer, it doesn't require God or my parents or you or anyone else, it exists for itself. Um, it is structured, every conscious experience, no matter which one you're talking about, is structured. So right now I'm looking at this uh, black screen, there's left, there's right, there's up, there's down, there's far away, there could be elements that have distinct qualia, there could be objects, it could be close by, farther away, etc., etc. It is the specific way it is. Every one conscious experience is specific in a particular way, right? I, I have a particular type of pain, which is different from a different type of pain. It's only one at, a, at any given point in time, so it's holistic. There aren't sort of, um, you know, several consciousness at, at once. At any conscious experience is one. It's sort of unitary. Uh, uh, it's holistic. Those are different terms that people say. And it's definite, which means it is very precise, even though a fuzzy feeling that something is wrong. I'm going into this dark garage, and I realize something is funny here. It's something I, I can't tell you what, but I know something is funny. That itself is a very precise feeling. And it's definite in the sense, 
most conscious, there's this entire universe of conscious experience that I'm not having. So it has definite borders. And then you take those five axioms. So every conscious experience exists for itself, is structured, is specific way it is, is one and is definite. And you say, well, let's translate it into a postulate where I take a mechanism, so a set of neurons or a set of transistors or, uh, you know, any physical system in a particular state. doesn't really matter what it is. T typically, it's some simple neurons because we know consciousness seems to be associated with neurons. But that doesn't have to be neurons. It could be transistors or it could be the state of, uh, of some crystals. And ultimately, you say, well, it is... It is what a conscious experience exists for itself. And the way you formulate that, you say, well, conscience ultimately is about causal power. Ultimately, this, the theory, any theory, has to make a commitment, an ontological commitment, what exists. And ultimately, in, in the view of IT, what exists, the only thing that exists are things that have causal power, either onto other, that's external causal power, and so physics only deals with external power, you know, whether that's uh, Coulomb's law or gravitational law, um, you know, or the laws of electrodynamics, that's always causal power onto other. Consciousness is similar, except it's causal power upon itself. So the theory says anything that has causal power upon itself, that's non, that has some causal power at the system level upon itself, any system like that is conscious, whether it's biological, whether it's organic or unorganic, doesn't really matter. It's nothing to do with the substrate. Any system that has causal power upon itself is conscious. And you, you, you formulate that in a, in, a in a mathematical formalism. You take a system, you have a transition probability matrix that describes how the system will evolve in time. And you say, and so you can compute the causal power it has given the system exists right now in a particular state where some neurons are off and other neurons are on. You can compute from the state it most likely came from in the past, and you can compute what is the most likely state it will, it will evolve to in the immediate future. And that gives you sort of its, a measure of its causal power. And then the theory says, well, you, for any one system, these 10 neurons or these 86 billion neurons, you have to look at what is the ultimately the substrate of consciousness, because that also will have definite borders, just like consciousness has definite borders. The, the theory says ultimately you're looking for a system that has a maximum of causal power. And so for any one system, so you look at, let's say, the brain. In principle, in practice, it's, it's difficult because these numbers quickly uh, explode because of combinatorics. But in principle, you can look at all possible combinations of neurons, and you always ask, what is this, the set of neurons or the set of mechanisms that has maximal causal power? The way you measure that is you compute this number called phi. It's a, it's a number between zero and whatever, infinity. And if it's zero, the system doesn't exist for itself. It's fully reducible to, to a smaller system. The bigger it is, the more it is irreducible, the more it is consciousness. And for any one system like the brain, you see what is this set of mechanisms that gives rise to the maximum, and only that exists. And that is the substrate of the NCC, the substrate of conscious experience. And that substrate has certain neurons that are in, those are part of the NCC, and other neurons that are out. Even though those neurons may connect, of course, in the brain, everything, you know, uh, it's... Uh, 
seven degrees of connection. Everything ultimately is connected to everything else, but certain parts of it are, are part of the substrate and other neurons are not part of the substrate. That is the NCC. And this you can measure. And in fact, this system has given rise to a practical device that's now being tested in, in a variety of, of clinical centers here and abroad called a, a Zapple and Zip. Essentially what you do, for example, you take a, a person uh, like Emery Brown studies, an anesthetized person, or you take a, a patient who may be in a persistent vegetative state, which is now called uh, a behavioral unresponsive state. So you don't know whether there's anybody home. So what you do, you send a magnetic pulse into the brain, you zap it with a device called transcranial magnetic stimulation, and then you look at the reverberation of the EG, so you, this patient has a 64 uh, EG, sort of this net of EG electrodes on its head, you shock it, and then you see how the waves propagate over the cortex. And it turns out that those people that are deeply asleep or deeply anesthetized or truly not present, let's say truly in a coma, they have a very low brain complexity. Their phi sort of is relatively low, while people who are, uh, who are normal but who are dreaming, which is a conscious state, or people that are uh, not properly anesthetized or aren't really anesthetized but uh, use an, an ketamine, which is not a true anesthetic, it's a dissociative, but people are actually conscious, but they're unable to talk, they're disconnected from the external world. Or people like in a, in a minimal conscious state where they might not be able to talk, but they are actually conscious. In all those people, the brain complexity is relatively is high above a particular threshold. And so this theory has come up with this practical measure that's now being tested to see is it a reliable measure to test the presence or the absence of consciousness in subjects that can't talk to you because they are disabled, because they're anesthetized, because they're babies, because they're catatonic, uh, or because of various other neurological or psychiatric conditions. The theory has a number of very unusual predictions about splitting brain, about mind bridging, about consciousness in connected minds. It also has a number of, uh, of intuition that it shares with panpsychism, because it says under certain conditions, consciousness may be much more widespread in the animal kingdom or in, in biology than we typically like to think. So it makes all sorts of predictions that people can test, and some are being tested. I was reading it, and I was, as I said, I read uh, earlier versions of Tononi's uh, paper. I don't think I've read the current one, but I, re I certainly read the first one and the second one. Could you dig a little deeper into this concept of uh, internal or intrinsic causality? That's kind of a a non-obvious concept. Maybe put a little bit more color on that. So how much of a difference can the system make to its own state, right? So if you have a system that only can adopt, can only be in one state, it has very little causal power on itself. But if a system is in a particular state and has access, depending on the exact probability transition, to a very large variety of different states where it could put principle uh, evolved to, then it has sort of more causal power upon its own fate. Unless, for example, all these connections are, are subject to noise, right? If they aren't reliable, and if, it's to, if the transition to all these other states are totally determined by chance, then again, it will have very little intrinsic causal power. So the causal power is, is the ability of any one physical, and, the, and there's nothing supernatural about it. 
it, it's not some sort of fuzzy ectoplasm. You take any mechanism, even transistors in principle, and wires, copper wires, and you know, you 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 hook the, the transistor gates together, etc., they will have some ability to do, to influence sort of their own state and how much they influence their own state and determine which of how many different states they transition to that gives rise to either higher causal power or lower causal power. And it turns out that if you look at now uh, connectivity, let's say, of computers, of the CPU uh, or the ALU, where typically one transistor is connected to three or four other transistors, or you take, uh, you look at a network connectivity like the brain, where one neuron gets input from 10,000 neurons and projects to 10,000 other neurons, and that output overlaps with, let's say, to 9,900 of those are also get also input from a neighboring neuron and from its neighbor and from its neighbor. The possibility for the system to choose one out of a gigantic number of states, depending on the exact overlap of the inputs and the output, is vastly larger for the neural network with this, uh, with this 10,000 uh, fan in and 10,000 fan out and with this heavily overlap than it is um, in a computer. So in fact, you can formally show that you can have two systems. You can have a simple computer, very simple, like three or four bit computer, and you can have a simple neural network, although under certain condition, they compute exactly the same input-output function. The causal power of one can be very low. In the limit, it can be it can go to zero, while the causal power, the intrinsic causal power of the other can be very high. It's not about the input-output function. It's very important to understand. It relates to how it transitions from its current state into the next state. Yeah, this is where I was a little quite unclear, because, I mean, uh, according to uh, you know, Turing uh, Church uh, hypothesis, uh, we could simulate the whole human brain on a Turing machine, you know, one of the simplest possible computing devices. And according to IIT, if we did that, uh, the simulation would have essentially zero phi or very, very low phi. Uh, and yet, if we uh, calculate it in the brain, it has uh, a very high phi. Well, it turns out that the neurons actually run on their own substrate. They run on a substrate of biochemistry. And I know a little bit about the uh, biochemistry, particularly of metabolism in the cell. And it has a very, very different kind of uh, interaction and connection scheme than the neural architecture does. And you know, at least kind of uh, rough gauging it, I would suspect it has a much lower phi. So why does simulating the brain on a Turing machine, or let's say not even simulating the brain, let's say running a artificial consciousness on a Turing machine, be impacted negatively with respect to its phi by its substrate, while uh, you know the way IIT is usually presented, they don't talk about uh, the biochemistry uh, substrate for the neurons. What's the difference between the two? It's a very good question, but quite a bit to unpack. So A, what is the relevant substrate and what's the relevant level of granularity? Because ultimately, of course, below the biochemistry, there is a molecular, then there's the atomic, then there's a subatomic, et cetera, et cetera, until we come to superstrings or membranes or, you know, whatever the current theory, best theory is. So why not just do it at all the way down at the bottom, right? Well, IAT says the, the relevant level of granularity, is it, let's say, atomic, is it molecular, is it uh, sort of uh, cellular organelles, is it single neurons, is it groups of neurons, is it columns, is it groups of columns? 
it is the one that maximizes phi. Same thing at what time scale? Is it nanoseconds? Is it milliseconds? Is it minutes? Is it hours? So in principle, for every physical system, it's a maximum principle, just like many other principles in physics. It is the substrate, and it's the level of granularity and the level of temporal and spatial granularity that maximizes the phi. And it is only at that level that it is proper to speak about the substrate of consciousness. Our intuition is right now, this might be wrong and you might be right, is that it's at the level of groups of spiking neurons. That's what most scientists think. But that's an intuition. That's not a proof. And ultimately, um, if IIT is, uh, is, uh, is the correct theory of consciousness, it, it, it will have to be shown that that is the level that maximizes. And in principle, you could do that. You can compute these interactions at various levels of granularity, and you could do it at the millisecond, you could do it at 10 millisecond, you could do it at the nanosecond if you have enough computer. So that, at least in principle, IT gives a very precise answer to that, uh, to that question. It is the level at which phi is maximal. Your other point is, and of course it's true, if I make a, a brain simulation, let's say, of a, a whole brain emulation, let's say of a, of a mouse, I can't even do that right now, but let's say 20 years forward where I can do a mouse and then maybe in another 50 years I can do it of a human. Well, so if this is a correct simulation at the microfunctional level where I simulate every neuron and did it correctly, then of course the thing, the simulation should open its eyes or its cameras or whatever the equivalent is and say, hey, I'm conscious. And if programmed correctly, it, it will do so. Alexa does this already. Talk to Alexa, ask her whether she's conscious. She, she'll tell you. But it's all a deep fake. And why? Because it's not about the input-output. And this is sort of the subtitle of my book. Why consciousness is widespread but cannot be computed. Consciousness is not a particular type of computation. It is not an input-output transformation. It is ultimately a state of being. It's ultimately the, 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 the causal power of the system, not what it does. So yes, computers will be able to do in principle, anything I can do, but they won't be what I am. Because a computer simulation, in that sense, unless you build it into neuromorphic hardware, it turns out the, the connectivity of conventional, you know, CPUs, ALUs, TPUs, etc., is very, very low. So as you said, yes, I can simulate consciousness in principle, in practice, who knows, but in principle, yes, it's going to be a deep fake, just like Alexa. Now, well, let, me, let me dig into that a little further. If the uh, neural uh, consciousness that we have uh, is, you know, a level above biochemistry and is able to preserve its phi. Uh, why does a let, let's not let's not talk about a simulation of a consciousness. Let's talk about an artificial consciousness that actually is also hooked up to inputs and outputs and stuff and is functioning as a consciousness in that system. Why does its one level down substrate of uh, transistors, which I agreed I ran the math very quickly, and yes, it would have a much lower phi. Why does that lower level substrate of computation pull down the phi of the higher level uh, software that's running uh, when the lower phi of biochemistry doesn't pull down neural computation? It's about the physics. It's not about some abstract high level software. It's ultimately about the physics. So you take your, your CPU or whatever, your robot, okay? and you analyze it at all the relevant physical levels 
Okay, so you can take the levels of the atoms, you can take the levels of the uh, the solid state, you know, in the solid state, uh, you know, the silicon dioxide and the electrons in the gap junction, etc. You can simulate it there. You can try to compute it at the very physical level. It got, comes down to the physics of the device, not its abstract mathematical function. That's different. That's input-output. That's what gives rise to modern civilization, you know, information, transformation, and all of that. But, but, but that is a very different notion. Uh, and this is fundamentally where IIT conflicts with the other dominant theory of consciousness with global neuronal workspace that I know you're going to um, also discuss at some, at some point in, in, in the future. Global neuronal workspace uh, believes and makes a claim that ultimately consciousness is just one type of particular type of computation associated with a particular type of structure called a global uh, neuronal workspace. And once you instantiate that, you will get consciousness. IAT is, is more physical. It's not about an abstract computation. It's about the physics of it. If you build, in principle, if you build what's called a neuromorphic hardware, so if you build, let's say, some silicon hardware or gallium arsenide or what, whatever your favorite hardware is that has a similar type of connectivity as a brain, as particularly as a human brain, then yes, then this thing would also be consciousness. There's nothing magical about consciousness. It doesn't require a soul or something like that. It just requires the relevant level of substrate, particularly this very high level of integration, but at the level of the physics, at the level of the metal, not at the level of the abstract computation. Jim, there's a good analogy here. Look at a computer simulation of, this, of the, the central mass at the center of our galaxy, right? It was just a Nobel Prize awarded for that, right? It's Sagittarius A star, right? There's a four million uh, solar mass heavy object at the center of our galaxy. Now you can perfect, and people have done this, they've done computer simulation of the gravitational dynamics of stars orbiting around that black hole. But funny, you don't have to be concerned that those computer programmers are going to be sucked into their computer simulation. Well, why not? If it simulates gravity, why doesn't this entire computer you know, disappear into a black hole. Well, because it doesn't have the causal power. It, there is this abstract map, uh, mapping between certain variables in its computer software and, and you know, the space-time tensor and gravitation, etc., etc., but it doesn't have the same causal power as mass to bend space-time. Same thing, to get consciousness, you cannot simulate it. In that sense, again, John Searle is entirely right. You have to instantiate it. You actually have to put it into the physics. But again, I'm still confused. You know, the neurons, all kinds of stacks between the neuron and quarks, right? And, uh, uh, you know, that's as much a stack as, that's, and that's why I say an artificial consciousness rather than a simulated consciousness, because I did take your point that if you simulate a black hole, it doesn't produce one. I still, uh, still, still don't get it, but I'll think about it. We got to move on, unfortunately. Well, uh, maybe we can talk about this another time. Oh, yeah, this is the other part that I know that you write it very clearly. So I understand what you're trying to say, but I don't quite understand what it means. And that is the single pattern of connection that has the largest phi, what you call a whole. And it could easily be, and in the human brain it probably is, uh, not only a subset of, let's say, all of cortex, but a dynamically changing subset of, uh, of cortex that is the actual instantiation of consciousness at any given point in time. Is that more or less what you were trying to say? Yes, that's exactly correct. So when I'm conscious of you, 
there's a particular substrate. But then when I think about my daughter in faraway Singapore or, you know, I play with my dog, it's going to be a different substrate. They may have certain things in common, like in all cases I see something or I hear something, but, you know, they, they, that particular set changes on the same time scale as my conscious experience does. And quite literally, if IIT is true, that only those neurons are uh, neural correlates of consciousness at that moment. Uh, and if we could get to the point where we could determine that, then we could see if IIT was true or not. And I presume that's what you're doing in this uh, adversarial collaboration. Including the neurons, by the way, that are not active, right? So people have this intuition that only neurons that are active, that are actually firing contribute, but that's not true. There are many neurons that right now are not active. For instance, my fire engine neurons aren't active. My Donald Trump neurons aren't active, etc. Right? They're all part of my con current conscious experience. It's not just the, the small set of neurons that are right now active. It's all everything that is not part of my, my, uh, and my conscious experience or that's uh, actively suppressed. So it's a, it's a complicated thing. You have to measure it. Uh, so ultimately, we have to develop devices that can measure it and they can visualize it. So I can look down at the brain of an animal or person and see, okay, here are the footprints of consciousness at any one particular time, uh, point in time. And how are they distributed? For example, are there more than one footprint at a time? Is it possible that the main experience, that's me, but there's also another smaller uh, sort of independent entity in, let's say, the front of my brain, or maybe the left brain and the right brain. Are they always connected? Or maybe at some point sort of it splits off into two independent parts. Those, in principle, you can, you can, all, um, you can all study. What happens if the brain is cut, right? If you get a corpus callosum, then the, the theory says and experience seems to show you have two conscious entities. What happens if I take your brain and my brain and I start interconnecting it? Will there become a point in time when our minds fuse, our minds blend into one conscious experience? And when exactly will that happen? So in principle, there's a really interesting number of experiments that one can think about and start doing, uh, certainly in animals, in mice or other animals. I was going to come to that, which is brain bridging. Again, uh, produces a intuitively surprising result, to say the least. And for the audience, uh, why don't you describe it in some precision, this idea that if, as you continue to connect neurons one at a time, at some point there's a phase change where we go from two consciousnesses to one. Yeah, let's first think about a little bit the opposite because that happens in clinical practice. Rarely, but it does happen. So you take a brain and it suffers from terrible epileptic seizures. They originate, let's say, in, in one side and then spread across these this bridge called the, the corpus callosum, the 200 million fibers that connect the left and the right hemispheres. And so as a last resort, what, what surgeons do, this was invented 60, 70 years ago, it's quite successful, they can cut, sometimes they have to cut the complete corpus callosum. And successful, these uh, seizures don't spread anymore. But now, as far as we can tell, there seem to be two conscious minds. This was first done by Roger Sperry at Caltech, and he got a Nobel Prize for it. There seems to be two conscious minds, the left hemisphere, which is typically the one that speaks, and, and the right hemisphere, it can hum, it can, it can sing, it can answer simple questions. It's also conscious, but it doesn't know that the two hemispheres sort of don't talk to each other anymore. So they're two conscious minds. Now I'm thinking of doing the sort of the inverse. So let's take your brain, Jim, and my brain. Let's route some wires between my visual cortex and, and your visual cortex. So you can begin to see what I see, but you're still you. And I can begin to see what you see, but I'm still me, Christoph. 
Okay, but now we add more and more wires. We add wires between our auditory cortices and between our frontal cortex and et cetera, et cetera. Now, IIT says, so for IIT, consciousness is always the maximum of integrated information. So as, as long as the connectivity between our brain is relatively low, the maximum, there will be one maximum in my brain and my maximum in your, and another maximum in your brain. So there'll be two conscious entities called Jim and Christoph. But as I ramp up this connectivity, at some point, depending on the exact geometry of the connect, uh, connections, the, the whole, your brain, my brain, and its interconnection will have a higher phi than the phi within just my brain and was just within your brain. At that point, abruptly, Jim will disappear, Christoph will disappear, and there will be this new entity. Suddenly, there will be this new entity called, you know, it's, well, I don't know, it's, it's some amalgamation of Jim and Christoph. It will, it will speak through two tongues. It will have four hemispheres, four arms, four legs, four eyes, etc. It'll be one conscious entity. And then once I reduce those connections again, then suddenly this thing will disappear and you'll find yourself again, you in your body and me in my body. It's a rather surprising prediction. It's very precise in principle. And again, this, you can test this first in animals and ultimately you can also do it in people once we have the right uh, technologies to do this. It's a very bold claim, right? And one that will be eventually subject to experimental verification, you know, if only in uh, neuromorphic computing, uh, where we could actually run that experiment. I think we want to do it ourselves. I mean, look, you know, ultimately, you know, in the act of lovemaking, right? And you know this because ultimately you're looking at your loved one, but you're, you're still you and she's still her and, and sort of, you know, you can never meet. But in this way, if you make love using your brains, you interconnected, you, there is only one. This is really the union mystica that many strive for. There's, there's really complete union. So I think people will want it <laughs> at some point. Well, God knows what the side effects might be, though, right? Oh, my goodness. Uh, yes, the people will probably want to. But, you know, at a minimum, we could certainly uh, try it with advanced neuromorphic computing, right, and see if in, if indeed there is this. And it just seems so uh, far out that adding one more neuron, suddenly you go from two consciousnesses to one. Yeah, but the inverse has to happen during split brain. So if you imagine this surgery experiment and the surgeon has some technology where it can, where he can cut one axon after the other, not all 200 million simultaneously, but one after the other. The claim is there will also be something like this. Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. It is testable. and It's a bold uh, claim. Be very interested to, to see how it uh, goes. Now, uh, speaking of which, one of the things that uh, I always try to be a force for out at the Santa Fe Institute is to make sure that high theorizing doesn't escape from uh, experiment, right? Uh, as you and I both know, some theorists love to sit in their office with the door closed and just theorize forever and never test their ideas. Uh, but as you talk about in the book and as I track down elsewhere, yourself and the folks who uh, put forth uh, a, a different theory, the global workspace theory, are working on a adversarial collaboration to try to find some uh, you know, solid lab experiments uh, that will distinguish between IIT and global workspace theory. Uh, could you talk a little bit about first what 
items of data you're going to look at and why they would point one way or the other, and then maybe a little bit about just the sociology of working together in an adversarial collaboration, which I find fascinating to contemplate. Yeah, so first of all, let's start with the top. What's an adversarial collaboration? So here we have two adversaries, uh, not individuals, but uh, two theories that make uh, that have very different metaphysical assumptions about consciousness and what it is and, and about being, which are difficult to test, but they make also some predictions, some empirical prediction about the, the neural consciousness, uh, the, the NCC, the footprints of consciousness in the brain, where they are and the relationship between the timing of the NCC and the conscious experience. And so adversarial in the sense that, okay, we disagree, but let's work out in a collegial way some experiment where we agree ahead of time in writing. If we do this experiment and this is the outcome, that'll tend to support your theory. And if it's that outcome, it'll support the other theory. And we've done that for a number of experiments. This is not easy to do, talking about the sociology, because, of course, people are people, as you can see in politics, and they'll try to game it. And they say, well, do I don't really want to commit myself. I think this is going to be the outcome. But I'd rather not say if it's not the outcome, my theory is, uh, is wrong. So, you know, people, so you have to nail people down. And this took like a, a roughly a year. And so uh, after a year, so we started off with a workshop at, at the Allen Institute for Brain Science like uh, in 2018. And then there was a protocol that we submitted to the Open Science Foundation, which in writing we committed ourselves, these are the experiments. And this, this is funded by the Templeton World Charity Foundation out of the, the Bahamas. And so now it involves 12 labs. So there are a number of very innovative aspects besides this adversarial collaboration. Each experiment is done by two separate labs, sort of checking each other. All the labs, um, the experimental labs, aren't aligned with either integrated information theory or global neural workspace. So they're just experimentalists, and they say to first order, you know, I'm just going to do this experiment. I think it's a cool experiment, and I don't, you know, I'm not particularly favorable to one theory or the other. Again, that's also important. Only the first half of the data will be uh, uh, will do all the training of classifiers on the first half of the data. Then we'll 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 show well what do we come up with, and only then will we test, will we extrapolate um, and look at the second half of the data. All the data will be available ultimately to everyone with an internet access. It's quite innovative. It's not easy because it's a large group. So this involves essentially two experiments, two visual uh, uh, psychophysical experiments using three techniques, fMRI, so standard functional brain imaging, then a combination of EEG and MEG that measures electric field, magnetic field associated with brain activity. And lastly, in, so this is in normal people, in, in volunteers, and then lastly, experiments in epileptic patients where the surgeon has to implant electrodes, so-called ECOG, electrocorticogram, where we're much closer to the brain, so we get more high-quality signals than in a regular EG because they're implanted beneath the skull rather than the EG, which is outside the, the scalp. And so it involves uh, 12 labs, uh, and then, of course, COVID hit, so we, we've been, we haven't made as much advances as, uh, as we would hope to. Hopefully, with the vaccination, you know, we can, uh, we can continue those experiments now the prediction really relate around two differential prediction between the two theories. One is that IIT predicts based on the connect, brain's connectivity 
that the neural correlates of consciousness will be in the posterior hot zone, so occipital, temporal, parietal cortical areas, while global neuronal workspace predicts the critical involvement of frontal cortex, prefrontal cortex. That's absolutely essential um, because that's according to global neuronal workspace. That's where the global workspace resides. And also the difference in the, in the timing. Uh, so IIT predicts that if I'm conscious for something for two seconds, then there will be a substrate for two seconds that continues to be active for as long as I'm conscious of it. While IT says, says uh, while global neuronal workspace argues it's primarily only the onset when it enters the global workspace or when it leaves the global workspace that you get a lot of neural activity. So those things can be tested and that's what we're trying to test for. And we'll see, the experiment should end normally at the end of next year, we'll see what COVID does to that timing. I greatly commend you for guys doing this. As you say, it's sociologically difficult. And I also love the fact that you took advantage of uh, pre-registration. We had uh, Brian Nozick uh, on back away from his Center for Open Science. And uh, we've talked quite a bit about pre-registration. In fact, I actually uh, provided them some funding to expand their operations around pre-registration. I believe it's an amazing way to clean up the, uh, the epistemic uh, system of science. So that's exactly what we're doing. With pre-registering, we work with Brian, we pre-register everything exactly for those reasons. Very good, yeah. I wish everyone would do it, but most people, it is more difficult pre-registering it, you know, because it, it ties your hand. You can't do every possible thing, you know, because that you only thought about later. Uh, but it's much better way to do science. Yeah, and of course, it's hard to get the journals to agree also, right? They don't want to publish negative results, things of that sort. But more and more are. So, uh, yeah, it's a very, very important thing. You know, the sociology of science is hugely important. We spend a lot of resources in our society on science. And if the sociology isn't optimal, the, uh, the, the return on investment is not optimal. So I commend you guys for doing uh, science the right way. Uh, well, we're getting kind of late in our call here, so I'm going to turn. I'm going to skip a few other interesting topics and go to the last one, which is the uh, panpsychic implications of IIT. Uh, do you really believe that? Well, uh, personally, yes, I do. So, okay, so first of all, what does IIT says? IIT says any system that has uh, that has phi different from zero feels like something. It may feel just like the difference between being there and not being there. But it says, in principle, consciousness is much more widespread than, you know, us and maybe great apes and other charismatic megafauna, like, you know, big uh, killer whales and, and, and tigers, right? That maybe even a fly or maybe even a limit. Look, if I look at a single paramecium, no one today, there's not a single computer simulation of all the molecular, the, the vast cascade of proteins and, and uh, protein to protein and protein to receptor interaction in a single cell paramecium, okay? Because it vastly exceeds our computational capacity and of course we don't have knowledge of all the binding constant. So it is quite possible that even something as simple as a paramecium feels a little bit like something. Now, it doesn't have a psychology. The paramecium will, won't feel fat or won't feel bored, but it may well feel like something to be alive. And when it dissolves, when its membrane dissolves and it isn't there anymore, it won't feel like anything anymore. So once you wrap your head around it, it's a little bit like saying, well, 
Temperature, let's think about temperature. Everything has a temperature. It turns out even deep space, right, is a black body radiation of 2.732 degrees Kelvin. So although it's utterly unimaginable cold, we couldn't survive in deep space, there is still some residual heat left, right, from the afterglow, from the Big Bang. And so it may well be that consciousness is much more widespread. But again, you can measure it. In principle, once you develop a phi scope, you can measure does this system have integrated information and you can measure it at least in systems like a fly or like a worm or like a, a beetle or a bee that has a million neurons and see how does it relate to its behavior and its, to its neural substrate. It's much more precise in panpsychism, but it shares this intuition, the central intuition of panpsychism. You know, if you think about the word pan, everywhere, all, psyche, soul, that everything in principle is in soul. Now, IT says, no, it's not everything. Uh, glass isn't in soul, uh, um, uh, hill or dune isn't, uh, doesn't have high phi, but every physical system that has phi will, you know, has some modicum of experience. Yes. Extremely bold, and of course, there, it you know has some linkages to some at least some of the subsets of theories of uh, quantum foundations, which we won't get into today. But it's a very bold uh, conjecture, and it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out in the years ahead. I think we're going to have to wrap it there. We've had too much fun here today. I'd like to thank Christoph Koch for uh, coming on the show today and sharing his thoughts. And I'd strongly encourage anyone who's interested in the topics we've talked about to. Uh, uh, you know, take a look at his book, uh, The Feeling of Life Itself, Why Consciousness is Widespread but Can't Be Computed. Thank you very much, uh, Jim. That was very enjoyable. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.